give a couple disclaimers before I start uh, teaching this morning. One is this. I was uh, driving down the highway last week, had the radio on, happened to have a Christian station on, and I was chagrined to hear Alistair Begg giving my teaching. How many of you guys? Yeah. Alistair Begg is giving my teachings. And not only was he giving the same, he's teaching through the Lord's Prayer. Same time, a much larger audience, Scottish accent, I can't fake that either. But he's using my illustrations too, which is what really ticked me off. So if you want to hear similar information on the same text with the Scottish brogue, you can tune in the radio at Alistair Begg. Also, giving credit where it's due, a couple of the concepts that I'll share this morning uh, come from what's called the Cripplegate blog, two articles by Mike Riccardi. So I want to make sure I got that plug in as well. Let me pray again, and we'll jump into the text. Father, Lord, your life, your God, you are the ultimate reality. And to come to know you, or to see you as you are, to enter into relationship with you is to enter into life. Lord, to exist, to draw breath in this world apart from knowing you is to remain in death, to be separate from you. And Father, would you honor yourself this morning as we look at your word? Would you draw some of us to life in you for the first time, spiritual rebirth? Lord, for others of us, would you convict us of the need to see you perhaps with fresh eyes as you really are and perhaps to order areas of our life in a way that more closely reflects your holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 3, you're probably well familiar with. Exodus 3 is the story of Moses basically being introduced to God. And you remember at this point in Moses' life, he's a shepherd for Jethro, his father-in-law, and he's tending those flocks there at Mount Sinai area. And he sees a shrub, a bush on fire. And the thing that gets him is it's on fire, but it's not consumed. And so he goes up to see this marvel. And as he does, God calls to him by name, Moses, take off your sandals because the place you're standing is holy ground. You see, the holy God, the creator of the universe, is there. This is a theophany. He's present, as it were, in that burning shrub. And he's holy. And he tells Moses, you must treat me as holy. Take off your sandals. And of course, Moses does. God is holy. He says, Moses, treat me as holy. And he does. And then this is also Moses commissioning. Because this is where God says, Mo, you're my man. I'm sending you south back to Egypt where you came from. I've got a job there. For you. Now, Moses is a little small, uh, uh, slow on the uptake, but he eventually fulfills his commission. So, God is holy, and he tells Moses, and he tells you and I to treat him as holy today. We are in the Lord's model prayer again, Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. If you have your Bible, those should be present on your study sheet as well. From Matthew 6. Part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus there in his model prayer for his disciples and for us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. This week, just as last week we focused only on a couple words, we're only going to focus on two phrases today, in heaven and hallowed be your name. If you remember last week, our Father, the two words, only the two words we looked at, we said that in Jesus' model prayer, Jesus invites us to approach God in plurality. That is, either that we are praying with others corporately, other Christians corporately, with others, or as we pray as individuals, we are bringing others with us. Either because we identify them with them in, in a group, in prayer, and confession, or we're interceding for them and their needs. But Jesus' model invites us to approach God in plurality, either because we're with a corporate group or we're, because we're bringing others with us in prayer. And then he also said that we're free. We have this huge, tremendous privilege that when we approach God, we can call him Father. He's not a strange, distant God now separate from us, but no, he says he's our spiritual father. And so when we approach in prayer, we have the privilege of children before our spiritual father. This morning, before we get into our phrases, I want to cover this first of all. There are six requests in Jesus' model prayer. Six requests. The first three have to do with God and God's things, not with us and our desires. God's glory, God's kingdom, and God's will. So six requests, the first three, have nothing to do with what Jesus says. We might come and say, Lord, we need this, or are you aware this is going on? But the first three, the first half of these petitions, have to do with God his things, his glory, his kingdom, and his will. And it's interesting that just a little bit later in the same chapter in Matthew, at verse 33, you see the same order echoed again. So when you get to verse 33, there Jesus says, uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things, your necessities of life, they'll be added to you, they'll be given. So in the Lord's model prayer, when we approach God in prayer, we put God and his things first, and then we bring him the needs that he already knows about. And Jesus says our model of life reflects that same model of prayer. We put God and his things first, and we trust him to provide us with the necessities of life. So when we get this right, when we put God and his things first, which is as it should be, then God is free not only to honor himself fully, but then to unrestrictedly, we might say, Fulfill the needs, the practical needs you and I bring to him. So the priority here is really, really important. God is so holy, he's so great, he's so important, that when we get in his presence, the first priority is not the minutia of our life that we need help with, it's God himself. And so when we approach God, we're approaching God about him and his things first. The bigger questions in life are not, what do I need, what do I want, what's on my mind. The biggest questions, the priorities in life are, who is God, what is he like, how can I know him, how can I participate in what he's doing in this life around me. Those are the greater issues of life, and Jesus' model prayer reflects that. When we enter God's presence, it's first and foremost about God. It's not about us and our specific needs in the moment. Now, Jesus says, our Father, we covered that last week, here today in heaven. When he describes the Father that we're praying to, he says, our Father, 
you're in heaven. And heaven's an important word in this prayer. It's an important word in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew's Gospel as well. It's used seven times in the Sermon on the Mount. Six of those are to identify that's where God is. And then 18 times in Matthew's Gospel it's used, 13 of those have to do with our Father in heaven, that heaven is the dwelling place of God the Father. Scripture uses heaven in a variety of ways, you know, and context always determines which of those uses we're to understand. So, heaven might be, in one context, heaven might be the atmosphere we we walk in and breathe, and the sky that the birds fly in, that's heaven. But then also, if we look past our atmosphere to the stars and the swirling constellations and galaxies, that's a second form of heaven. But then there's also a third form or use of heaven, which is the place uniquely that God dwells or lives or has his habitation. Now, on one hand, we know God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. God's here. God's in every corner of the universe. But he distinctly says, but sort of the place I hang my shingle or my hat, I call heaven. I call heaven. In the Hebrew, it's Shamaim. And it usually infers the highest heights or the heights above. So in the Old Testament, that word implies this high, lofty, exalted, separated place. And in the Greek, the term is uranos, and that means the covering, what's above us, what covers up the earth. But context determines how we're to understand those. Here, in verse 9, Jesus says, God lives in heaven. Now, you know, because we all share a common ancestry, we all are descendants not only of Adam and Eve, but of Noah and his wife. And as they came off the ark, of course, they had common knowledge. And as their descendants dispersed across the earth, that common knowledge sort of digressed or changed in the variety of cultures it ended up in. But almost all cultures have a sense that God lives or dwells in the high and lofty places. So, you know, if you think of Greek mythology, Mount Olympus, that's where the gods live, that high, lofty mountain. And if you look at pagan culture, and archaeology is big and rich in this today, the Middle East, for example, if you check out the highest places of the Middle East, for instance, you'll find the remnants of altars and temples because the thought there was the same. Our God lives on the high, lofty place. And it's no coincidence that when Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem, it's put on a raised platform. It's the highest thing around. So not only did Jerusalem sit on a hill so that you would say we're going up to Jerusalem, but you had to go up to the Temple Mount just as you would today. So there's that common understanding that God dwells in the high, lofty, exalted, and separated places. Pagans understood that on the earth. For God, though, it's not on the earth. Lofty on the earth isn't high enough. No, God's dwelling is actually loftier than we can get on the earth. It's in heaven itself. The Scriptures are clear that when we're thinking of heaven as God's domain, it's not the atmosphere and it's not the arena of the stars that you and I could reach either through a set of wings or through a rocket ship. And it's clear. Uh, Acts 7, 49, a great, great speech by Stephen right before he becomes the church's first martyr. At verse 49, 
he quotes Isaiah 66.1, which is God himself speaking. And there Isaiah, God says through Isaiah and Stephen again, the heavens are my throne, the earth is my footstool. God says sort of, it's as if the starry sky that you can see above you that to us is so vast and immeasurable, God says that's big enough for me to sit on. And the earth that feels so big and vast to us, no, that's like a cushion I might put my feet on. The vast starry sky that seems so distant and huge to us, God says, no, that's just a little chair that I might sit down in. Look in 1 Kings 8, verse 27. By the way, these passages are just outstanding. If you Later this afternoon, Acts 7, great place to read, or 1 Kings 8. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon is dedicating the temple that has just been finished. And you remember his, his father David had divinely be given, been given plans for this temple, set aside all the stuff to build it with. Solomon took seven years, the best craftsman. He's finished it. And this scene is glorious where God himself comes down in this cloud of glory and takes residence in this temple. But when Solomon is dedicating the temple in prayer, he says this, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. We've got this temple, Lord, but we're under no illusion. This, this house we've built that's grand and glorious, it's actually tiny. It's infinitesimal compared to your greatness and your vastness. And not only can this temple not hold you, but the highest of the highest heights cannot contain you. So Solomon says, even though we know you're going to meet with us in this little house, we don't think that you're small enough to fit here. That the loftiest of the universe is not big enough, not adequate as your home. The highest heavens are not sufficient as your boundaries. You're not contained within these. And then last, in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul says that he knew a man, and we assume that it's actually Paul himself. He says he knew a man that had ascended to what he called the third heavens. And we assume that this goes like this. The first heavens would be the sky, the atmosphere we breathe, the birds flying. The second heaven would be space, what we would call outer space. And the third heavens would be that distinct place, that is heaven itself, God's home. But it's, it's distinct from the atmosphere. It's distinct from the measurable universe. Paul says the third heaven. So we're to understand that when Jesus invites us to pray to God our Father, he, he wants us to know that God, our Father, is in heaven. We're familiar with him on one hand because we're his spiritual children. But guys... We are not to confuse this with an unhealthy, unholy familiarity. That God is still the one who resides in heaven itself. God is the one for whom the universe is not sufficient to be his home where he choose to make it. He's high and distinct. Uh, Revelation 4 and 5, to bring one of these points of holiness home be another great passage for you to read later, Revelation 4 and 5. You see in these chapters a vision of John the Apostle taken up to heaven in Revelation 4. And some of what he sees is this. He sees a being on a throne. And this being, God, looks like these shining gemstones. And the throne itself is surrounded by this emerald rainbow. 
And around this central throne, there are 24 smaller thrones, and there are 24 elders seated on those, and they have crowns of gold. And apparently around them, the throne in the center, the 24 thrones around them, John says there are myriads of myriads. Myriads means 10,000. There are 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands of angels. So in our mind we see the throne, God on the throne shining like gems, surrounded by smaller thrones, surrounded by really uncountable multitudes of angels who fall down and say, Holy, holy, holy. And along with those multitudes, there are what John calls living creatures. It's, it probably doesn't know quite how to describe them. We're told they have a variety of appearances. But one of the things that's true of these living creatures is it says they're filled with eyes. They're covered with eyes. This might look really strange. And by the way, the, the appearance of these living creatures is quite a bit like Isaiah 6, which we'll look at at the end, as well as in Ezekiel, the opening chapters of Ezekiel, there are creatures that look very similar to these. But they have eyes, and what that means is they see things as they really are. The, the eyes mean knowledge, awareness, comprehension. And so these living creatures around the throne where God is seated, looking at God, because of the fullness of the eyes, the multiplicity of eyes, we understand they see God fully, not comprehensively, ultimately, but they see God as He really is. And as they see God, it says they keep saying the same thing. They say, holy, holy, holy. Now, if you talk to people who aren't Christians, or even Christians, if you talk about holiness, it, it makes us cringe, sort of like prayer might. There's guilt, there's a sense of, I know holiness is important, but it sounds boring to me. Holiness sounds like all the things you can't do. Holiness is to be separate. It's to be set apart specifically for God and His purposes in spiritual parlance. But think of this for just a minute. These living creatures, they have eyes. They have a lot of them. They see God as He really is. And every time they look at Him, they're overwhelmed again by the same thing. And they say again and again and again, He's holy, holy, holy. For these living creatures, every moment is this sequence of looking at God again and comprehending God more fully, more deeply as the ultimately unique, holy, lofty, mighty Creator God. So they are not to be pitied. You don't have to feel sorry for them that they aren't out doing something else. Playing tennis in the afternoon or boating or whatever. They wouldn't trade places with us. What they see in God is absolutely overwhelming. And if we could take somehow in our mind's eye, if we could take the ultimate positive experiences we have either had or could imagine... So the most beautiful pictures, the most beautiful sunrises or sunsets, the tastiest foods, the highest heights of joy, the deepest sense of peace, if you could take all of those your heart and mind can imagine, if you multiplied them times each other, and then you multiplied that times infinity, 
you'd get some inkling of what these creatures see in God every moment. And so all they can say is God is holy, holy, holy. See, that's what's going on in heaven. They see God as He is. It's not boring. It's overwhelming. It's sensory overload. To see God as He is in heaven is to know that He is holy. He's utterly unique. He's perfect in all His perfections. And that's what these living creatures see. God is holy. So Jesus starts, our Father, in heaven, a reminder of God's greatness. So when we think of God, our Father, the one who's in heaven, it's meant to remind us how high and lofty He is, how holy our Father is. Jesus wants us to make sure that we remember God's our Father, and there's a common bond there now. There's there's a spiritual rebirth through faith in Christ. We become God's children. We approach Him in prayer as His children. But that doesn't change who God is, His vastness, His glory, His honor, and His holiness. Now, recognizing God in His holiness, the invitation is, the first request of God in prayer, hallowed be your name. Or, Lord, you're holy. You're the one in heaven, separate, distinct, and holy. Lord, you're holy. Might your name be made holy in this world? You're holy. Lord, may your name be treated as holy. The first request. When Jesus says, may God's name be holy, he doesn't mean somehow God's name as distinct from God himself. You know, in the scriptures, the name represents the person. So if we treat God's name as holy, we treat God as holy. The name represents the person. So Jesus is saying that the first request from his believers in this typical model prayer is that God himself would be honored as holy holy. Probably for most of us, that's not the first thought in prayer. God, you're holy. Might you be treated as holy? But in Jesus' model, Jesus says that is of the first importance. That when we pray, we say, Lord, you're in heaven. You're holy. And Lord, may what's true of you in heaven, may that be true of you on earth. Might you be treated as holy here. Hallowed be your name. God is so utterly unique, so fully and totally separate from all His creation, so perfect that Jesus' first instruction related to making requests is that we would see the absolute primacy of God's own holiness, that He and His name would be known as holy throughout the earth. And note this too. This is the thought. God in heaven is holy. May He be treated holy on the earth. And you see the same parallelism in the next phrase when Jesus says we should also pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the same thought, isn't it? God, you're holy in heaven. They say holy, holy, holy. And so we pray, may you be made holy on the earth. And then later Jesus will say, may your will be done on earth the same way it is in heaven. In other words, might what's true in heaven be replicated on the earth whether it's in our prayer or whether it's in the activities going on on the earth. Might God's 
get in this in another phrase, kingdom come. Might God's temple, might, might what is true of God in heaven, might that become the truth all over the world? And of course, that future, glorious future is yet to come. So, holy is the attribute of God that's referenced most fully and forcefully throughout the, the Scriptures. It's the description of God used more than any other. In fact, it's the first descriptive part of the name of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So this first petition, Jesus says, recognize God is holy and then pray that God would be made known as He is holy. For you and I, there would be lots of practical ways to do this. When we're corporately worshiping as we gather on Sunday mornings, we are treating God as holy. We're we're honoring Him by saying those things that are true of Him. You know, when we pray in Jesus' name, not as a, as a mantra that we throw at the end of every prayer, but when we thoughtfully pray as we believe Jesus would pray, and we pray in Jesus' name for Jesus' sake, that is honoring God as holy, Jesus as holy. When we speak the truth to other folks who don't yet know Christ, when we share the gospel and evangelism, that is treating God as holy. When we speak the truth to ourselves and to others, that is treating God as holy. God is the God of all truth. So this is a call for holiness. Now, we talked about this a little bit in a recent series we did on the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, that list of commands God gave the nation of Israel through Moses. You remember the third command was a negative It was stated as a negative. Do not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Don't attach vanity to God's name. It was stated as a negative there. Here, when Jesus takes it up, he flips the coin, and now he states it as a positive. Now treat God's name as holy. Negative, don't attach vanity. Positive here in the model prayer, treat his name as holy. In Ephesians 1, verse 11 and 12, Paul there says that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. When you and I glorify God by the way we live, by the things we say, we are treating God as holy. And Paul says we've been called as Christians to glorify, to give God His due based on His holiness By the way we live our life, that's what we're called to. Our lives should reflect His glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul's covered a number of issues with the Corinthian believers. And as he winds down, he says, "Just, just put them all under this rubric. See everything in life this way. If you eat or if you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If we say, God... My motive, my desire in whatever I'm doing today, the folks I interact with, the lunch I have later, my goal is to honor you. We are treating God as holy. God and His name as holy. In fact, when you look at Jesus' prayer in John 12 and John 17, right before He's going to be crucified, Jesus is praying, God, my Father, make Your name holy. Glorify Yourself. So in John 12, 28, He says, Father, glorify your name. 
John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come, the hour of my death, my crucifixion, when I'm going to be separated from you. The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. That's treating God as holy. The commentator Albert Barnes, a hundred years and change ago, said it this way, Let your name be celebrated, venerated, and esteemed as holy everywhere, and receive from all people proper honor. John Piper said this, This is the first function of prayer, to pray that people would pursue the glory of God. Jesus makes this the first priority because this is the most important thing we can do. To see God as He is and to honor Him is our highest calling. So Jesus says when we pray, we're to do so with the realization of God's holiness. Now, this has practical implications for you and I. If Jesus says that He wants us to treat God's name as holy and we pray, God, might Your name be made holy, what does that mean for you and I? who are praying that God would be made holy, what might that mean for us? Can we pray, God, might your name be holy without being committed to holiness ourselves? I mean, imagine us uh, here, let's say in church on a Sunday morning, maybe we just say the Our Father together, and we say these words, you know, God, you're in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, does that affect the way we live when we leave? You know, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, Monday morning. Does that affect the way we we live? Would anyone know that we were committed to declaring the holiness of God based on the way we live and the things we say and do throughout the rest of the week? Can you imagine what hypocrisy we're guilty of if, like the Pharisees, we're getting up with our Sunday morning mask on, we're playing a role, saying the prayer, we're doing the right things... But then we go on the rest of our life about our things with the things that concern us as if none of that has anything to do with the rest of our life. If we pray, if we go to the holy ground and pray, God, might your name be holy, guys, it's going to cost us. We have to be committed to God's holiness, to declaring his holiness if we're going to pray the words of Jesus' model prayer. In Leviticus 11.45, when God made Israel his special covenant people, he said, guys, this is the deal. I'm Yahweh, I'm God. I'm holy, and that means you must be holy. And guess what? When you go to the new covenant and the epistles, and you read what God's will is for his new covenant people, the church, do you know what you find? You find exactly the same thing. I am holy, and therefore you must be holy. You're my people, you must be holy like me. Ephesians 1.4 God chose us in Christ, in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Ephesians 5.25 Speaking of marriage and the comparison with Christ and the church, Paul wrote, Christ loved the church. He gave Himself up for her, that, for this purpose, He might sanctify her. Sanctify is holy. In the Greek, it's the same word for holy, hagios. That he might make us holy, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. It's as if we've been given a bath. The dirt on us has been washed off. That He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. You can see no less than Israel, in fact, much more highly today for Christians in the church, we are called to be holy. And this text says Jesus has done His part by washing us with the water of His Word. And just for one more point of application, if the truth of the Scriptures is what Jesus uses to make us holy, where should we be hanging our hat? Are we reading our Bibles? Are we meditating on the truth of the Scripture? Are we committing Scripture to memory so that it's with us throughout the day? Because if we're not, we cannot be holy the way God means us to be. Because God uses the truth of His Word to make us holy. So if we follow Jesus' model prayer, hallowed be your name, it implies something of us. It costs us something to say this prayer, these words. It calls us, it reminds us of our call to holiness. This prayer starts with us. If we pray, Lord, hallowed be your name, that starts right here, right now with me, the one praying it. Forget about the world for the moment. If we're not hallowing God's name in what we say and what we do, how can we expect the world around us that doesn't yet know him to hallow his name and to treat his name as holy? Jesus' model not only starts by pointing us to the fact of God's holiness, but it infers the call to holiness for those following His model prayer. Let me be quick to say, we start to wind down here. We have what's called positional righteousness as Christians. You and I today, apart from anything we do, we are holy, positionally. Every person who's been born again through faith in Jesus Christ has an entirely new life within. That life is like Jesus himself. It's perfect. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we have, we are the righteousness of Christ. Our starting place is holiness. We don't have to work up holiness in God's presence. We have it. In Christ. Couldn't be any better. It's perfect. But the call for us is to reflect the perfection of that holiness and righteousness we have in Christ. It's to work that out in our day-to-day living. It's, it's no different than the prayer itself. In Christ in the heavens, we're perfect already. And Christ in heaven we know is holy. And so when we pray, Lord, you're holy in heaven, be holy on earth, we're saying, Lord, we know we're righteous in Christ, help us be righteous on the earth right now. It's the same parallel thought. You're holy, may your name be treated holy here. Lord, we know we have perfect standing in Christ, in heaven, our representative before you today. Might you work out that same kind of perfection in our lives here and now. And please don't, don't misunderstand this. You know, if you talk to people. We're inherently very religious people. And we inherently want to justify ourselves. And so we'll jump through little hoops to prove to ourselves or to others that we're 
holy, that we're okay. We practice, we're quick to practice a form of moralism. It's really no different than the Pharisees. It's putting on a mask. That is not what we're called to. And frankly, that kind of lifestyle, who wants that? I mean, don't bother. I don't know why anybody would bother just being religious. I mean, what is the payoff? Seriously, I've lived on both sides of the fence. I've been a total pagan, and I've done everything I wanted to as a pagan, and I was miserable, and I'm a Christian, and it's like, why would I pretend to be something in between? I'm a little holy, but I really want to live this way. Why bother? The payoff is inadequate. No, but we're called to holiness. This is life at its best. This isn't a bad thing. So when we talk about practical holiness, do not let your brain say, this is moralism. This is some form of, I'm going to clean up my life a little bit. You see, if that's all we're aiming for, we've missed the thought. God means to display in us His moral perfection. And I know this doesn't happen very full, fully or very well here. I, I get that. But that's the call. So when you read Paul in 2 Corinthians, he talks about the fact that we have this treasure, this life of Christ, and it's in a clay jar. It's in a cheap clay jar that fractures easily, breaks easily. But the, the clay jar holds something absolutely perfect inside it, the life of Christ, the glory of Christ. So this call for us to work out a practical form of holiness is a call to display the holiness of God. It's not just not to sin. If we're just saying, I'm going to avoid the wrong things, we've missed the mark. The mark is God's holiness. And He wants us to put His holiness on display. So our goal should be, Lord, I want to hallow Your name so fully. I want to know You so well that Your life is reproduced in me and that when people see me, they, they see some small image, some small visage of your holiness and your perfection. So when we say we're called to holiness, don't minimize that, that it's just do this little thing, don't do that little thing. That's not the point. The point is we're called to reflect the very holiness of the life and the nature of God himself. 1 Peter 1.14, Be holy for I am holy. I want to close with uh, eight verses from Isaiah 6. And as I read through these, note the parallel with uh, Exodus 3, Revelation 4 and 5. And if you've read Ezekiel lately, you'll know that this also reflects the opening chapters of Ezekiel. You know, Isaiah is the key Old Testament prophet, 66 chapters long. I mean, God's man, right? Isaiah 6 is his commissioning, just like Exodus 3 is Moses' commissioning. Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting upon a throne that was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, just like the living creatures in Revelation. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah sees God there in heaven. He sees him in his glory. And he says God's glory is so vast, so important that 
It's as if His glory, like light from the sun, simply radiates out over all the earth as Isaiah sees Him here in heaven. When they do this, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, and remember Isaiah, this is a stand-up guy. This is a righteous guy. This is a good man. And Isaiah said, woe is me. ESV says, I am lost. I think King New American Standard says, I'm undone. I can't stand here. I'm losing it. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, what happens to us is what happened to Isaiah. When we see God as He is, we get He's holy. And when we see what holiness looks like, we realize, I'm not it. I've got a problem. God is holy, I see Him as He is, and I am undone. I'm toast, I'm history, I'm out of here. Woe is me, I'm undone. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now think for just a minute. Isaiah sees God, he's holy, Isaiah gets it, I'm not even though by our standards, I'm sure he was very holy. But compared to what real holiness looks like, Isaiah says, that's not me. I fail the test. And God says, well, I can take care of that for you. And so that seraphim, that special kind of angel, takes a coal from the altar. And of course, the altar is where the sacrifices are burned. So there's been a sacrifice on the altar and a coal from that altar is taken and Isaiah's sins are atoned for and the coal touches his lips because he's God's spokesman. His mouth, as it were, especially is set apart as holy to God because he's going to speak God's words. So Isaiah says, I see God, he's holy, I'm not. God says, not to worry, I can take care of that. You're atoned for now. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. You know, this is where all of this is going, of course, isn't it? This is where God's going. Here am I, send me. You see, God says, uh, Isaiah, I need somebody down here in this little part of Palestine. I need somebody that knows who I am and knows what I like and can speak my words to this people. And Isaiah is like, man, I got a problem because you're holy and I'm not. And God says, okay, well, I'll take care of that. And in this scene in Isaiah, it's as if God throws the question out there generally. Gosh, I wonder who I could send. But Isaiah knows now. I've seen him as he is. He's atoned. He's covered my sins. I'm your man. I'm your man. Guys, for us as followers of Christ, we've stood with Moses at the burning bush. And we've stood with Isaiah in the courts of heaven. And we've been with John in Revelation. And all of us, as we see God in His holiness, as we're in His Word, or as we worship, 
as the Spirit makes God real to us, we get it. God, you're holy and I'm not. And God says, I can take care of that. And we believe in His Son and our sins are atoned for. And God says, and by the way, I need somebody. Mike, I need somebody in your neighborhood with those clients you're going to interact with. I, need, I wonder who I could send. Or Judy, or Bob, or Alan, or Rick. I need somebody in your neck of the woods, in your neighborhood. I wonder who I could send. And our response should be Isaiah's response, not the slow response of Moses. Isaiah's response. Lord, I get it. You're holy. And I'm not. But you've atoned for my sins, and I get the privilege now of taking your holy message to my part of the world. And when we pray, Lord in heaven, hallowed be your name, we're taking up Isaiah's mantle and John's and Moses, and we're taking the name of the holy God on our holy lips to the world we inhabit, and we're making God's name holy where we live with the people we interact with. Our Father, the Holy One in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy be your name, and let that start with me. Father, thanks that in your great holiness you didn't leave Isaiah stranded. Lord, thanks that the slow and sometimes belligerent Moses, Lord, wasn't left as he was. Lord, thanks that John the Apostle didn't just remain a fisherman, but Lord, that for them and for us, that ultimate sacrifice, your Son, the Lord Jesus, came down. He atoned for our sins on the cross. He paid the debt we couldn't pay. And Lord, as we see you today, we know that you are holy. And we thank you for your perfections. And Lord, we ask that that holiness that's true of us in Christ would become more practically true of us day to day in what we say and what we do. The thoughts, Lord, God, you are holy. And we pray with your son Jesus, make your name holy and let that begin with us. In Jesus' name, amen.